Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, one of your co-hosts. Uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two. Hello, guys. Hello. Hey, you guys. How are you? Pretty good. Who is on the show this week? For today's show, I talked to Donovan X. Ramsey out in Los Angeles, where he's currently on staff at the Los Angeles Times. He covers black life in the city. And prior to that, he's had, well, he's had a really sort of varied and accomplished career so far. He's done a lot of freelancing, including long-form pieces for the likes of GQ, Wall Street Journal Magazine, Vice, The Atlantic. He also worked as an editor at Complex and then as an editor at The Marshall Project. He's written a book that's coming out next year about the history of the crack epidemic. So he's seen a lot of sides of the journalism business and he talked about the resistance that he's come up against, particularly as a black writer who had a very clear sense of what he wanted to cover and the voice that he wanted to develop, and then how he got through that. And I appreciated his reflections on all of it. And he's also just, he's a really fun, he's a fun guy to talk to about his work and, and how he approaches it. Wait, did you go to Los Angeles for this interview, or are you just saying he's in Los Angeles? He's in Los Angeles. Okay. Would I, I wish that I had gone to Los Angeles, but no, I stayed right here. Were that I could go to Los Angeles. I didn't know if we were allowed to fly ourselves <laughs> to these interviews, and if so, I would like to take advantage of that clause. Aaron's about to start interviewing lots of Hawaiian journalists. Um, we are brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. They make this show possible. Support them. It's supporting our show. Thanks, MailChimp. But before we move on, I think we have a couple of other things that we need to talk about. Yes, episode oh, wow. two of Exit Scam is out right now. Aaron's new podcast about uh, the uh, incredible, incredible story of a sort of crypto kingpin. He ran uh, Canada's largest Bitcoin exchange. He died under very mysterious circumstances. Aaron has been investigating it for like two years. The show is amazing. Hold on, you guys. I want to read something quickly. Let me just pull it up. Uh, you guys remember Nick Qua? He's been on the podcast. He covers podcasting. Here's how he described Aaron's show last week. An utterly strange and fascinating tale told in an uncommonly entertaining way. Wow. That is a good review, man. If you have not listened to Exit Scam yet, go listen to it. Thanks, Nick. I'm going to second that review. 
Max, I understand that in addition to pitching my shows, you have a show of your own coming out. Yeah, it's out. It's out as of yesterday, which is totally, totally terrifying. Uh, but I started a new show. It's going to run for a couple of months. It's called um, 70 Over 70. And I am interviewing 70 totally uh, remarkable people all over the age of 70 about uh, lots of things, but mostly like their, uh, their lives right now. I'm trying to understand, uh, I'm trying to understand that time in their lives. I've heard some parts of this show, and uh, I found it to be very moving and very thought-provoking. And uh, if you love a Max interview, which many fans of this show will, and I do myself, uh, you're going to love 70 over 70. I will say that uh, you guys have kind of made me feel like a schlub. <laughs> the, the, you're those pandemic people who, through the whole pandemic, you're actually like per, each producing some amazing multi-part thing. Evan, where's your podcast, man? Where's your podcast? I'll get on it. Here's Evan and Donovan X. Ramsey. All right, Donovan, welcome to Longform Podcast. Hey, Evan, thanks for having me. There's a lot of things I want to hit in this conversation. And so I want to kind of just start from the beginning, if we can. I know that you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I've done a little poking around in your background. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, and whether there was anything in that that pushed you in the direction of, of writing. Yeah, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, uh, which I thought was a big town growing up. And I later learned that it is just a college town. But, you know, Columbus is a special space because Ohio State University is this great big university that draws in lots of different types of people and a lot of stuff happens on campus. So it felt to me very sort of cosmopolitan and, and, and international. So, yeah, I like grew up kind of in the shadow of, of Ohio State on the south side of Columbus, Ohio, um, in a uh, almost entirely black neighborhood. I went to black schools for middle school, I actually went to a place called the Columbus Afrocentric School, which is this really incredible, I guess it would kind of be considered like a magnet school other in like other places, but in Columbus, we call them like alternative programs. So it's a public school, but a specialized education around um, really just Afrocentric ideas, like putting African history, black history, black culture at the center of the education. So that was a really special experience because like not a lot of kids get to have that. And I had black teachers and administrators. So I think that really impacted me growing up. Um, but also like I just come from like a family of really curious people and, and storytellers. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom talks more than I do, which is quite a feat because I am a talker. And um, I just grew up in a house where people like express their ideas and ask questions. You know, we didn't have a ton of money, but my mom still subscribed to magazines and newspapers. You know, so I grew up reading Ebony and Jet and the Columbus Dispatch and the New York Times. My favorite, of course, was Vibe magazine. Um, that was that for me, that was the pinnacle of cool and the pinnacle of journalism in the, you know, 90s. Yeah. Was um, these like young people of color in New York, you know, doing a really fascinating mix of arts and culture and politics and news, but also like really digging into hip hop in a serious way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like when I was a kid, I wanted 
I think on some level to be a part of that world, but I didn't know kind of what the path to that would be. And it wasn't conscious, but I just imagined myself hanging out with, you know, Emil Wilbekin and Danielle Smith, who were the editor in chiefs. And I would look at the, the sort of like on the town section with all the pictures of them at like, you know, Diddy's white party. And I thought like, oh, like I could totally do that. So that was my I can see myself there. Yeah, you know, hanging out with Diddy and like supermodels. Yeah, I think that kind of planted the seed for what would later become um, sort of an introduction to journalism. Yeah, and you went to Morehouse. I was watching, um, I think, a talk that you gave when you went back to Morehouse in like 2016. And you said you came in as a, at least wanting to be a psychology major. So what was driving that? And what, was there something that made you switch into journalism? Was there like a mentor or a moment that kind of pulled you into it? Yeah, so I mean, actually, the like the big goal was that I was going to become a civil rights attorney. Mm. That I've always been, you know, really expressive and had ideas about just fairness and like justice, and that comes from you know my like personal upbringing and you know the kind of values we had at home, but also my experience in school. And yeah, so when I was thinking about where I wanted to go to college, I wanted to go where Martin Luther King Jr. went to college. So you know, Morehouse it was. And I got there and I um, was a psych major. I actually picked psychology because it was sort of what came to me most naturally. Hmm. That most, you know, like the uh, guys that are pretty low will go into poli sci and that was just not at all interesting. So, you know, I like pursued psychology. I was on a pre-law path, Um, but somewhere along the way, a good friend of mine who was managing editor of our school newspaper, the Maroon Tiger, he asked me to draw cartoons for the paper because he knew that I could draw and paint. So I started off drawing cartoons. And, you know, from there, you kind of fall in love with seeing your name in print. So then I would, you know, try to make the captions a little bit longer for the cartoons. And they got longer and longer Mm -hmm. to the point that he was like, you should just write for the paper. And from there, you know, you kind of just get swept up in that world. College papers are so special because it's really like the heart of what a newspaper is supposed to do, which is to cover everything and document everything happening in a small community. And Mm -hmm. a college campus is really a small community. Um, You know, so you get that immediate interaction and impact when you write something. So, you know, for me, that was more attractive than going to law school and, you know, pursuing a career in law that if I was going to have an impact on the world that journalism seemed like the thing to do. So um, it wasn't until it was my senior year though that I started to kind of think seriously about that. It was like this make or break moment where it was like, oh, like, are you gonna, you know, take the LSAT and do all of that? Mm -hmm. Or are you gonna pursue something else? And I had a conversation with a mentor of mine, Dr. David Wall Rice, who um, was then like a professor in the psych department. And I was a part of his lab about how I was really thinking about journalism. And this is a man that I had known for years at that point. And he says, oh, that's so interesting, you know, because um, when he was at Morehouse, he ran the school paper and he graduated and he went on to Columbia Journalism School and he did writing for Vibe and Source and XXL and all the hip hop magazines that I loved. Oh, wow. Things that I did not know about him, right? Because he, you know, later got a PhD in psychology. And, um, you know, he said, if you're, you know, really interested in it, that I could, you know, write your recommendation for Columbia and kind of introduce you to that process. And he did. And that for me was um, sort of this really like powerful moment of alignment, you know, where you kind of like 
open up and express yourself and then like the universe conspires to help you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that was my um, sort of move to New York. So Columbia J School, you know, when people go to J School, sometimes they're looking for networking, you know, to get into the industry. And sometimes they're looking for skills and sometimes they're looking for both. Did you have a feeling of what you wanted out of that going into it? Well, I should probably start by saying that I had an awful experience in J School. I, All right, I, let's hear about that. <laughs> I hated J School. So um, my experience had been growing up in a college town like Columbus. And then I moved to, you know, a mid-sized city like Atlanta for my years at Morehouse, but I never lived in a big city that had, you know, a big journalism industry. So one, I really wanted to be in New York. I also wanted to get formal training in journalism. I wanted to get, you know, some type of like background in writing because I had studied mm -hmm. psychology. And then mm -hmm. there's kind of the, the extra added element where at Morehouse, they encourage you to go to graduate school. And I think that a part of that is kind of the school's culture of like respectability, hmm. which is that it's very important at HBCUs that their graduates go on and get advanced degrees in education sometimes so that way they can become educators themselves. Like you uh -huh. know, a lot of my Morehouse brothers, you know, are now college professors. You know, if you get education, you're supposed to then go out and spread and like lift as you climb, you know, as we mm -hmm. say. But also, too, there's this thing about, and I don't know if many HBCU graduates will um, sort of fess up to this, but people do question a historically Black college education because it's Black people being educated by other Black people. That's like questionable, you know, in a society that does not value Black intellectual thought. So, I mean, I think that that did kind of plant a seed in my head that made me feel as though I needed to go to a, a PWI, a, a predominantly white institution to complement my education at Morehouse in other people's eyes. And, right. um, you know, I think the fact that like Columbia is also like, you know, an Ivy League school also was kind of weighing on me this thought that then my, you know, credentials would be like unassailable. Mm -hmm. um, so that said, you know, when I got to the J school, I didn't really know what I was expecting. I mean, I thought that I would do this year where, you know, I would learn to be a real journalist, whatever that means. And, yeah. you know, really to be able to kind of have the skills and the education to tell all the big, difficult stories that I wanted to tell. And I do think that I walked away with that, but I walked away with that in many ways despite the school and not because of the school. Like, I think I made a good decision to be in New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because um, um, then I was around other journalists. Then I was around, you know, the, the, the journalism industry. And I was able to seek out opportunities where I could learn the way that this industry actually works and I could get good at storytelling. But you didn't feel like the school itself was set up to give you that. So maybe on paper that like I had like lots of really good classes. I had a fantastic um, magazine writing class. I had a really good part of the interview class that I really liked. And, and there are classes on the business of journalism and journalism ethics and like the law surrounding journalism and all those things were incredibly useful. It was also very useful at the time that the J School was set up around specializations, right? So I was a magazine concentrator 
and um, in the reporting and writing class that I had, everyone was actually assigned a beat. So you really did beat reporting. Mine was the South Bronx. So every day I was up in the South Bronx looking for stories to bring back to my reporting and writing class. And um, that's special because those opportunities really don't exist in, in many newsrooms for like young reporters mm -hmm. that the kind of slimming down of our industry has made it so that people who are interns or, you know, fellows, those are typically the like entry kind of opportunities that are available. So in a sense, I was paying tens of thousands of dollars to get the experience that a generation ago, you know, any kind of like entry level reporter would get. So those things I think made me a better journalist, but um, there is something about creating formal education around something that really you just have to get through practice. Mm -hmm. For some people, it can kind of diminish your, your voice. And for a black journalist, I can only speak, you know, as a black journalist, that voice is so important. It is incredibly important in establishing connection, authentic connection to readers, you know, sort of no matter what their background is. Like, I, I think that like white readers need to hear the, the authentic voices of black journalists. And I especially think that black readers need to hear the authentic voices of black journalists. Mm -hmm. And I do feel as though that to some degree that J school was training some of that out of me and not intentionally, right? But just the idea that there is, you know, one sort of valid way to be a journalist does that inevitably. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to dwell on this too long, although as a person who didn't go to J school, I'm always, I'm always pressing people in J school. I'm like <laughs> endlessly fascinated uh, by it. But I mean, you had a pretty strong reaction in saying that you didn't, you didn't have a good experience there. Was it mostly that you felt like you were trying to develop a voice and the institution was trying to tell you you shouldn't have that voice? Well, it was that, and then also the fact that I had a terrible professor. Uh, his name's Sandy Padway. Um, he's like this like really old New York Times guy who, you know, kind of uh, got off on like being like a hard ass. And, you know, he did not like me for, for whatever reason. And I think that a lot of mm -hmm. my uncertainty and my insecurities about entering a school like Columbia, about entering a J school program where many people have already been in the industry, he saw as like resistance. Or you know, mm. I really can't say what he saw it as, but he like behaved as though I was resisting him <laughs> in the process. And that made it um, very difficult to like go to class. And you know, at least at Columbia, you're like reporting and writing class is where you spend the most of your time. It's kind of what your main cohort is. And whoever your professor is, right, that largely kind of impacts your experience. And he just did things that I thought were like really nasty. Like, um, you know, once he, he didn't like the way that I had structured a story. So instead of making notes on the page, he printed the story out. He cut up the grabs. He rearranged them, then taped them back together, rolled them up and presented them to me in class like a scroll. And I was the only one that got edits back like that. Why? 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 To what end? To what end? I mean, I mean, the so I mean the the effect of it, right, was that I was like really embarrassed. And this is yeah. also, you know, a program that's not incredibly diverse. So I mean, almost all my classes, I was the the only black student, uh, male or female. The program was already incredibly competitive. 
and you know you want to uh, to like get along with people and to be seen as like a smart, capable person. And a lot of things that he did, I felt like really undermined that. And you know, I can't say if it was because I was a black student. I do know that other black students had uh, many difficulties with him, um, hmm. kind of along the same lines. And it sucks because um, my experience at Morehouse had been so welcoming and so loving. And, you know, it, it pushed me for sure, right? Like it was um, Dr. Rice, for example, the professor that, that mentored me that I talked about earlier, we became close because he failed me in my research methods and stats class, like research methods and stats one. And I, you know, tried to go to him afterwards and like negotiate a better grade. And I remember saying to him um, during office hours, I, I really feel as though I have a mastery of the material. And I mean, the way that he laughed, the way that he like full on head back, mouth open, laughed in my face and said, you know, if you had a mastery of the material, you would have an A, like you would like maybe a B, you, you wouldn't have a C. And then invited me, you know, back to his class the next semester and ultimately to his lab, you know, but but that was a different type of toughness because it was also loving. And also yeah. I felt as though he like wanted me to succeed, you know, to succeed in the program. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't have that feeling at Columbia. I felt as though um, that there was kind of like an opposition to me, to the stories that I wanted to tell, to the way that I wanted to learn journalism you know, which I think is also really important when you're paying tens of thousands of dollars is that there has to be some sort of like accounting for, you know, uh, what it is you actually want to get out of the program and how you want to be, you know, treated and like communicated with. And um, the funny thing is that like, I like never told him any of this. I had maybe one conversation with, with, with Pat Way during his office hours where I said that I felt that he was too curt with me. <laughs> <laughs> because I couldn't work up the nerve to say that, like, I think you're an asshole, right? Like, I think you're an asshole. I think that you're treating me differently because, you know, I'm a black student that you don't know how to communicate with me. And instead of dealing with like whatever weird feelings you have about that, you're like projecting them onto me as like, I'm the problem when like literally you're in charge here. So, you know, so like um, ultimately it really affected my, my confidence in the early years of my career because I had no idea who I was as a journalist. You know, I, it, it, it took away a lot of the stuff that I got in my experience at Morehouse. Um, but luckily there were things that that experience couldn't take away. And that was just how important I knew it was for there to be black journalists like myself telling stories about black America. Like those were things that were embedded in me you know, during my years at Morehouse. So, you know, after my experience at Columbia, that's what I leaned on. You know, that was, you know, when I was actually working, it was like, well, you know, maybe you're not the best journalist in the world, but you're so well positioned to tell these stories that you almost have a duty to. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, 
and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So did you did you really enter into your career knowing in the back of your mind the kinds of stories that you were looking to tell and the direction you were looking to go? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, having grown up in a black community, having gone to a historically black college, there are all of these nuances of black life that are so complicated and beautiful and like complex that you just never see examined or expressed in media. Um, mm. You know, maybe every now and then you get something that's like really well done, but for the most part, you know, coverage of black life is created for white readers and white viewers. So it tends to be flat. It tends to ask and answer certain questions. So there's all of these stories that never get told that I knew going into journalism that like, I want to be the guy that tells those stories. Like, let's say, for example, a story about the black church. That's not just about like, oh, you know, look at these people like shouting and praising, which is so interesting and fascinating to like a white audience. But for me, is like a mundane detail about the black church. Yeah. There are so many more fascinating things like the like old women who've been ushers for like the past 30 years and take the job super seriously and, you know, kind of bully people around the church because they can tell you when you can come into the sanctuary and when you can't. And they have the confidence of the pastor. And those ladies really run the church, but nobody ever talks to them, you know, <laughs> or, you know, there's always a, um, you know, for example, what it means to be like a kid who like grows up in a black church. And, you know, maybe your parents are there for Bible study and there for like choir rehearsal and, you know, maybe your uncle's the pastor. So the church is kind of your playground. You know, how do you grow up um, your, your sort of ideas about right and wrong where your area for experimentation is a church? That to me is fascinating. And I've like never read either of those pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons is that, you know, there aren't many publications that are dedicated to telling those types of stories. Right. Um, but I think the larger reason is that there's not a whole lot of interest in them for, you know, non-Black audiences. So 
Yeah, I was sort of committed right out of J school to trying to find a way to tell those stories. It seems like you started freelancing pretty quickly and your bylines show up in Gawker, they show up in the Atlantic over the years, they show up in all these different spots. How did you find receptive editors for the stories that you wanted to tell? You know, some people are just kind of like, like I, I started out working for Wired and like Wired wanted a certain kind of story and I just figured out what kind of story they wanted. I kept trying to sell it to yeah. them, but I didn't have what you had, which is a real feeling of what kind of story I wanted to tell. But so given mm. that you had that and given that those stories oftentimes aren't told because of the way the industry works, how did you find the editors who would be receptive to that? Yeah. So I would say, you know, this is my like moment to like shout out black media because, um, you know, that was where I was able to, to play stories and to really hone my voice and build back up my confidence, mm. you know, as a journalist. So students in J school, at least in Columbia's program are discouraged from taking internships because the program is so short, it's only 10 months. Um, so they don't want you kind of splitting that time with a job, but I wasn't confident that I would be able to get a job out of J school if I didn't have internships. So I interned at the Columbia Journalism Review um, during um, the first semester of that year. And then in the second semester, I interned at The Grio, which was MSNBC's Black interest site. Mm -hmm. um, it's now a standalone site. It's owned by um, Byron Allen. It's like Black billionaire. And so I got opportunities to write for The Grio. I got opportunities to write for Ebony Magazine. I wrote some stuff for Black Enterprise. Those are mostly through my like Morehouse network. Miles Marshall Lewis, who's a, um, a older Morehouse grad, took a chance on me and assigned me, you know, do this thing about Janelle Monet or, you know, write this, you know, story about personal finance for like Black women. And I just did whatever he said. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to kind of have that as a foundation, but you know, it's really hard to pay your rent freelancing in New York. Yeah. I came up with this harebrained scheme that actually worked out where I said, you know, I could still get the benefit of learning from older journalists if I assisted journalists while also freelancing and doing my own work. And that would give me, you know, enough money to pay my rent to make sure that I, you know, had groceries. And then I wasn't kind of dependent on every editor loving my stories in order to like place them. Um, and I can take time to kind of do the things that I want. So I had a brief stint right out of J school at Money Magazine, which is Time Inc's like personal finance brand. Mm -hmm. And I met a woman there named Farnoosh Tarabi, who's a J school grad and um, this kind of like superstar in personal finance. And she was looking for an assistant. So she took me on as an assistant, uh, you know, while she was writing a few books and, but I also, oh, this is the fun part. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like a little bit of like a schemer, right? So like, I like come up with these like plans and I say, okay, I have to figure out a way to like execute this and to make it work. So the plan was I wanted to assist journalists that I really liked. So I would go onto Twitter and this is like the early kind of like Twitter days uh -huh. and I would send out questions to journalists whose, whose work I appreciated. And they were always questions sort of like related to like the craft of writing or to sort of putting magazines and newspapers together. So I would ask questions like, you know, what's your favorite magazine cover? Or, you know, what was the most difficult story that you ever, you know, reported? And people would actually respond to me. And over, I would say maybe like six months of doing this, people kind of get it, you know, like a sense of like familiarity with you. 
So I was kind of stalking down Danielle Smith, who was a former editor-in-chief of I Magazine. Mm -hmm. And I was just constantly sending her questions and Danielle was always responding. And I was like, oh, this is somebody who I really have to meet. So one day I convinced her to come out and get coffee with me. And she did, and she you know, was writing a book at a time. It was a history of black women in pop music. So at the meeting, I just pitched her a ton of ideas. I mean, she just looked at me like I was this like psycho, like insane person. It was like, okay, okay. Like trying to figure out how long she had to be at this lunch before she could leave. And then um, afterwards, I kind of emailed her the list of ideas. This is so creepy now that I think about it. Like this is like the last thing you want to have happen when some like young journalist is reaching out to you. Um, this is going to happen to you now, you know. Oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so it uh, took her like a few months after that, but eventually she said, you know, I actually looked back over these these ideas that you sent me. And I think that, you know, you might really be a good assistant. Like, like this could be helpful for me in my process. So now I had two assistant gigs, which meant that, you know, I could even like pay back a little bit of my student loans. And I could also I ha had the freedom to write the things that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And um, that is so incredibly freeing because otherwise you kind of get on this hamster wheel of doing whatever editors want you to do. And it becomes even harder to find your voice and even harder to kind of find your lane within the industry. The things that you want to write about that people will know you for. Mm -hmm. And you're, you start writing about black life. You start writing about criminal justice. Was there a, a story in there, like a longer story that really where you did feel like, Oh, okay, I've got my confidence back and this is the voice that I was trying to find. Yeah, there was. There was when I was at the Grio, um, a woman named Miriam Carey was um, shot and killed outside of the White House. And many people don't remember this. It might have been, I think, in like 2013, 2014, but she was having a mental health you know, episode. Mm -hmm. um, she had her, you know, toddler in the back seat and she went to the White House saying that she had a meeting with President Obama. Um, you know, of course, you know, when the Secret Service kind of started freaking out, she um, tried to reverse, but instead drove into a barricade at the White House, ultimately reversed and started driving towards the Capitol. And I don't think it was Secret Service, might have been actually Metro PD unloaded into the car, killed her. Her daughter was luckily unharmed, but it just it just broke my heart and it raised for me so many important questions about, you know, power in this country, policing, the way that sort of power is kind of like exercised through policing, the value of Black life. This is like pre-Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. um, pre-Michael Brown even. Um, so I wrote a story about it where I, you know, wanted to dig into how many people were actually killed by the police every year um, and Black people specifically. You know, and of course, there wasn't an answer for that, right? Because they like there is them. no count. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it just stuck with me that I really wanted to sort of dig deeper into policing. And then um, a few years later, I had the opportunity to get this fellowship at a place called Demos, mm -hmm. which is a progressive think tank. And um, they, you know, asked me to kind of carve out a few interest areas, you know, that I wanted to kind of report on. And policing was my like main one. I had basically like a portfolio of, ideas I had and questions that I wanted to answer throughout that fellowship year. And they at the time were like, mm, policing is really hard to do. You know, there isn't kind of like a ton of interest in it. You know, Dean Moses work mostly had been around like 
you know, financial stuff and like economic issues. So they were like, you know, maybe you can do student, you know, loans and kind of on the side do policing. And then, you know, when I was actually in the fellowship, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson and all those ideas that I had, you know, came into play. Yeah. And I was able to really execute, you know, almost all of them and, you know, even more. At the time, were you, how were you going about finding your outlets? You know, you've, you've got this backing from Demos, but are you, how are you strategic about figuring out where you want these pieces to go? Yeah. Well, this is the great thing about fellowships or about this fellowship in particular. There was a great director of fellows named Rich Benjamin, who was this like wonderful, magical, you know, uh, man who's a journalist and writer himself. And he did something that no one ever sort of like asked of me, which is that he told me to write a list of places where I wanted to be published mm. and to, you know, write out the ideas that I thought that I could execute in a year and to prioritize the list of places that I wanted to be published, right? Like what would make you the happiest and like the most proud and what do you think is the most impressive? And then he said, you know, this is how you should pitch your stories, that, that you should take each of these ideas, work them into a pitch and then send them to this list according to your priority, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, everything went to the New Yorker. <laughs> everything went to the, to, to the New Yorker first. And um, I've still never published anything in the New Yorker, which is, uh, you know, yeah. one day. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, it's really amazing about sort of the opportunity to be intentional in journalism because so much of it can feel like a rat race and can feel like kind of just a scramble to either keep up with the news cycle or to, you know, do the things that editors want you to do. But the fellowship was great because, you know, I think it gave me like $50,000 and health insurance. Mm, oh huge, boy, huge health insurance. <laughs> like I like got cavities filled. I got glasses that I needed for years. Um, you know, it was <laughs> such a saving grace in that sense. And, you know, and I was also able to keep what I earned as a freelancer. So I also around that time uh, struck up a relationship with Gawker through Jason Parham, mm. um, who, who I think has been on the podcast, yeah, been, right? Yeah, yeah, just last yeah, year, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think Jason is, and I'm gonna take the opportunity to say it now, um, one of the best editors I've ever had. And he's honestly one of the smartest people in journalism. Mm -hmm. And he's just as good as an editor as he is as a writer, because he has this incredible way of recognizing a good idea, you know, telling you what can make it better. Also, just like dismissing things like flat out without any emotion, like telling you like, no, that, that actually kind of sucks. <laughs> and like it not being personal. Um, but then also, you know, he has like this like fieriness to him where he can like really fight for the things that he knows are special about a story. And, you know, I haven't had many black editors mm -hmm. and it's, you know, really like wonderful when you know there are these little like details either in the language or in a character that you know will resonate with, with black readers. And he has a great way as an editor to, you know, go, you know, back and to fight copy over something or to fight, you know, another editor over a detail that is super rare. So I think I text Jason once a quarter saying, you know, I just really want you to start your own publication. So anybody listening, throw some money at Jason Parham to start his own <laughs> publication. 
Well, that that I I, I feel like you talking about um, always wanting to cover these issues, being very intentional about how you cover these issues, and also an industry that's not been very good at telling those stories, has not been open to telling those stories over the years. And now you have a job in which it is your job to tell those stories. I feel like in the one sense that could be extremely gratifying, like, <laughs> yeah. but I wonder if it comes with like, I don't know, a greater sadness that it's that difficult or still that challenging to kind of make that possible. I am really discouraged about the sort of conversations that are happening around diversity in newsrooms hmm. because they're just tired. I yeah. mean, and at this point, like we, we all understand that there are a lot of talented people of color who can write. Um, we also understand, especially sort of given recent events, that there's a need to put the perspectives of people of color and the stories of people of color at the forefront so we can better understand what's happening in this country. But the reality is that a bunch of old guys just don't want to give up their jobs. That like, you know, there are finite resources in our industry. And the only way that we're going to get more diversity is if like, you know, white dudes make less money or leave the profession. At least as long as white dudes are the ones who are in control of who gets hired. Mm -hmm. Right. So I feel really like, you know, of course, happy to have a job and have insurance and to be able to kind of do the work that I want to do. But I'm always frustrated that like about those stories that don't get told. One thing that I think is kind of the anecdote to it is that like we just need more people of color to start, you know, our own publications. Mm -hmm. Because I think that like we're kind of beyond the point of like begging for jobs or for opportunities. I'm kind of like tired of that. <laughs> and to some degree, you know what? Like I've kind of just come to terms with the fact that like, you know, I didn't build the New Yorker or New York Magazine and I didn't build the New York Times. So like, like the New York Times doesn't owe me a job. The LA Times doesn't owe me a job. And I think that we get caught in these like diversity conversations because we often have so much respect for these institutions. And we think that like, this is like the best place and this is the authority on journalism. So it's frustrating then to see a place that you think of that way, not represent all these other perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a part of me over the years has kind of just had to take down my estimation of certain places. Like, I think that like, you know, the New Yorker is like the pinnacle of white journalism. That's a different conversation, right? And like, maybe I should build something that's the pinnacle of black journalism instead of trying to push the New Yorker to be the best thing for everybody, right? Which it likely will never be, even though it's a great publication, right? Maybe I should just allow it to continue to be the best thing for, you know, educated, higher income white people. And then I create something for everybody else or, you know, Everyone that's listening to this, give Jason Parham a bunch of money yeah. to create the best thing for everybody else. <laughs> well, you um, so then you did a stint at um at the Marshall Project, yeah, as a commentary editor, and that made me wonder a couple things. First, did that seem like a possible route for you to kind of like gravitate from writing to editing and and just stay in that space? Is that what you were thinking at the time? And yeah, and and why didn't you? I guess. 
I did, yeah. Like I really love editing for like many reasons. So like I like started editing at Complex, but that was, you know, mostly like news, like a little bit of opinion here and there. And, you know, it's wonderful to be able to bring new voices into the fold and to be able to actually kind of guide other writers in their thinking about telling a story, to also, you know, have ideas and to like assign them. You know, um, I think that coming out of like freelancing, I always had ideas that either I was like never um, able to place or I would be working on something and wouldn't be able to like execute something else that yeah. was timely. So, you know, when you really just like are like an ideas person, being an editor is great because, you know, you can just keep assigning stuff and you can see many more of your ideas actually come to life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I should also say that um, the day that I signed my offer letter at, at Complex, I got an email from Bill Keller um, saying, hey, you know, we have, you know, some openings at the Marshall Project. You know, we would love to kind of like have you come in and like take a meeting and get to know you. So I did. Like, I think like during my like first week at Complex, I went and had coffee at the Marshall Project and met Bill Keller and met um, Kirsten Dennis, who was the managing editor. And we just, we just got along, you know, really well. They, you know, really liked the ideas that I had. But, you know, I had just started this new job at Complex. So uh, Bill said, you know, when you get tired of pop culture and sneakers and, you know, girls or whatever, like, you know, hit us up. Well, you know, he, he didn't say hit us up, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever the, like, you know, the, like, old white dude from, like, the Northeast version of hit us up is. Please contact us. Yeah, right. <laughs> Please contact us. So, yeah, so there did come a day that I got tired of sneakers and girls and being, like, the, like, downer in the edit meeting who's like, oh, like, you know, this, like, police shooting so I reached back out to the Marshall Project and they had the commentary editor position um, that was open. And I, I really loved the work that I did at the Marshall Project because I got to interact with people who had really big ideas about a complex system. Mm -hmm. And I got to know the criminal justice system really, really well because it's huge, right? It's a, a, a each jurisdiction and like locality has its own system with its own quirks. And there are also these larger ideas around justice and mercy and punishment and correction and safety that run through, you know, these little mundane things, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was a really fascinating experience. And it was um, sort of how I got the idea for my book, which is, you know, a history of the crack epidemic was I was, you know, doing a lot of, you know, thinking around criminal justice and having conversations with people all over the system and, you know, and sort of answering the question of how we got the system that we have now, the crack epidemic came up, you know, and I grew up in the 90s in a neighborhood that had been hit hard by crack mm -hmm. and you kind of saw the residue of it, um, especially in the way that like the neighborhood was policed, but people didn't really talk about it. You know what I mean? That like you could feel the trauma around it. And, you know, every now and then, you know, something might kind of like slip out in someone's speech or in something that they said about, you know, that person, you know, having a father in jail or, you know, somebody, you know, being a kind of quote unquote crackhead or, mm -hmm. you know, that that becoming a joke when we were kids, right? To call somebody a crackhead or to say, oh, these these cookies must have crack in them. Yeah. But 
you know, and having the conversations around it when I was at the Marshall Project, nobody talked about it using the same terms. And what that said to me was that, oh, everybody kind of experienced this thing differently and has a different relationship to it. And we don't really agree on what happened. So I, I like sought out books and resources about the crack epidemic and was shocked to discover that there was no real authoritative history that mm-hmm. looked at the crack epidemic all around the country, the way that it was experienced, what it was, you know, the fact that it ended, right? Like no one ever kind of like rang a bell to say the crack yeah. epidemic is over. Yeah. And um, so it seemed to me like an opportunity that if I was going to write a book, that the topic was big enough. Um, and that there were enough stories there and there were enough people who were still around to talk about it, that that it could be a book idea. So, yeah. And how did you practically approach that? Did you, I know you had one piece in Vice that was about a murder from the crack uh, era. And I wondered if that was a prompt for it, but it sounds like you were thinking more generally. Did you try to like play some stories in order to put together yeah. the proposal or did you dive straight into it? How did you approach sort of like the publishing industry at that point? So, you know, my idea was that I wanted to see if there was interest in the story. So Mm -hmm. that piece for Vice was kind of me putting my toe in the water. Um, Also at the time, you know, I thought that the book was going to just be about DC. Um, It seemed to me like a, uh, just a much easier way to kind of concentrate and tell the story would be, oh, like I'll do it in DC because you have Marion Barry in DC. It's the nation's capital. So you can kind of connect national policy to local policy and practices much, much easier. There are also like a few like high profile drug dealers, a guy named uh, Rayful Edmonds, you know, out of DC that I thought could be interesting to sort of um, kind of delve into. So, you know, I set up on my Google alerts about crack in DC and, you know, certain figures. And I, one of the, the alerts that I got was about this triple murder from the 80s, um, someone being arrested, you know, for it. And for me, it seemed, oh, this is the exact period of time that I want to cover for the book. And this is something that places the crack epidemic in the present moment. So, yeah, so I reported that piece for for Vice and, um, you know, ultimately decided to not go with kind of doing it just about D.C. But the story really informed me that, like, oh, no, this is a story that needs to be told. Mm-hmm. That people are still hurting and having their lives affected, that our society, you know, has been shaped. American cities have been shaped by the crack epidemic. Um, so definitely dig into this, write the proposal and see if you can get a book sold. And, you know, luckily, yeah, I was I was able to. So then once you land it, then you decide at some point to take this wider lens. And I was reading there's a little bit in Black Futures, mm-hmm. a little piece that you wrote about the use of the word crackhead, but in there it references like all the places you've been to report this book all over the country. So I'm interested in how you approach that. Once you decided, okay, I'm not gonna do just DC, you're looking at a vast landscape, decades of (laughs) possibilities, infinite stories. How did you kind of get your hooks into where you wanted to pin it down? Well, here's where Dr. Rice's insistence on research methods and stats kind of comes in handy. For many of my stories, I try to first look at the data and the research to determine whether or not the story that I'm interested in is actually representative of the dynamic that I'm looking for. So I found this great data by a scholar named Roland Fryer out of Harvard 
who he had created this index to measure um, the crack epidemic. So it mm. looked at things like cocaine-related arrest, cocaine overdoses, laws that were enacted, children born with you know cocaine in their systems, and then to measure which cities were the hardest hit. So um, I, I I used his list of the like 20 hardest hit cities. I visited, I think the like top 10, actually visited, wow. I think 12. And from there, you know, looked for individuals who expressed different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want it just to be about, you know, the people who created the laws or, you know, the people who were addicted or the people who sold drugs. Because again, a lot of people had different experiences of the crack epidemic and it kind of depended on where you were standing, how you saw it. The book is, you know, When Crack Was King and, you know, it kind of has this, I'm calling it like a kaleidoscopic view of the crack epidemic that really centers um, the experiences of people who survived it. So yeah, so I kind of weave in and out, you know, the stories of um, a former addict, a former dealer, the child of an addict who, you know, later became a dealer and um, a, a man named Kurt Schmoke, who was the mayor of Baltimore, mm-hmm. who um, really tried to address drugs in Baltimore in a serious way at the time. All right. Well, I don't want to go too deep into it because I feel like we want to have you back when the book comes out. Okay. <laughs> um, but I am interested in one more aspect of it, which is what kind of challenge was it for you to like land that material in I saw you post on Instagram that you had filed a 115,000 word draft. What what was your process for bringing those threads together? Or even, let's start with organizing that material and then yeah, bringing yeah. it together into that draft. So this book almost killed me. I mean, like seriously, like for me, like being like a person who's like a little bit anxious. No, when, let me be honest. I'm not a little bit anxious. I have full on like panic disorder, right? So like. I can have a panic attack unexpectedly or, you know, just not be able to write because I'm so, you know, wound up. Mm. And so writing this book was the first time that I ever had writer's block. It's the first time that I ever got hives. Just like I would sit down at my laptop and I would break out in hives. <laughs> and I think it was because, um, you know, like I felt like the book is was, you know, so important. And I still feel like it's so important that I, I feel like I have a duty to to do something significant, but to also make it good. And like, I, you know, do not take that lightly that I'm, you know, telling a story of a period that was traumatic for a lot of people and I want to handle it well. So what I did and what made it possible was I really just leaned into the folks that I was interviewing, that I, you know, interviewed a ton of people. I settled on just a handful of them. And I just tried to work hard to create relationships with them and to really learn what their life was like over that period of time. And as you know, you know, once you have the material and you know how good the material it is, you just have to bring the book to life. You have to bring the story to life because it's just it's there. So that was how I kind of got through the writing process. I organized it chronologically, right, Mm. that like. That was the only way that I could kind of make sense of the larger meta history and then also the lives of these individuals that don't really touch or, or kind of intersect. So, you know, right now, the you know, all those words are kind of organized along a meta history that follows the growth and expansion of crack as a drug. 
that follows the reaction to it by sort of local and federal governments that um, follows crack's decline. And then I plot sort of major events in the lives of these individuals along that timeline. Mm. So I think of it, you know, as like the history is like a spinal column and each of these stories kind of stretches out from different parts of the spinal column. We, you know, drop off with some and we pick them back up later. And um, that was like just a way to just organize it on the page. And then came the process of seeing these other little connections, right, that don't necessarily have to do with the um, chronology, but you start to see mirroring in the lives of the individuals. Or you see moments that, you know, may have impacted two or three, you know, of the individuals at the same time. And that's where the fun comes in, right? Like when you're in the editing processes, you see all these sort of other connections and it, um, you know, makes it so that it's not just you know, like a survey of different people's lives, but they're really kind of experiencing something together as, you know, people living in a society. Mm-hmm. Man, I really want to read this book now. Good, good. When, that makes when can least... I read this book? <laughs> It'll be, um, you know, my mom will be the first person to buy it and you'll be the second. Um, so... You said it almost killed you and you, you pushed through, you obviously pushed through to get it done. Do you feel like you got to a space beyond that anxiety eventually or you just kind of pushed it aside and were able to like power through like do you think does yeah. it come back for you when you write now it does um but i'll say after reading the first draft and then so i like wrote the first draft and then i took significant time off from even looking at it i gave it to my editor and was like please like do something with this but then you know you kind of get a little bit antsy when you're waiting to hear back from your editor so I um, started to kind of glance at a few pages and I thought, you know what, this is actually pretty good. You know, like I'm like reading it and I'm thinking, this is totally like all the things that I wanted to know at the beginning of the process. Or, you know, then I've, you know, now started to kind of share it with some friends, um, you know, mostly, you know, who are writers and I'm getting, you know, really useful feedback and I'm able to kind of like have some of the arguments that I was having just in my head that were driving me crazy you know, with other people and find ways to kind of work through them collaboratively. And I wasn't doing that before. And that is so helpful because, you know, writing is so, I mean, it's like a solitary thing. And, you know, um, if, if you're lucky, you have like a great editor who you can think along with. Mm -hmm. But a project of this size, when you're writing a book, even if you're a person who usually does work independently, you really can't do it alone. Yeah. Because you get so deep into it that you lose all understanding of where you are in the story. Um, and you kind of can like, you like forget what's good and what's bad and you fall out of love with your voice. Um, that was a big thing for me was I maybe got 50,000 words in and I was like, oh, like, are you going to do this thing again? Like, are you going to introduce a character this way again? Or are you going to describe or like set like a scene in this way? And then you feel completely, you know, without a paddle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it takes, yeah. um, you know, breaks to stop and to read, to be able to kind of get a sense for like what you like and, and again, what your voice is. But it also takes, you know, um, letting other people into the work and, you know, and getting that feedback to kind of find your way out. Mm-hmm. So I would be uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a couple of magazine stories that you were doing, I guess, along the way while you were also writing the book because it came out 
last year, but you were doing some big profiles for the Wall Street Journal magazine and then also GQ. And in particular, I really love this, this Killer Mike GQ profile that you did last year. And one thing that I really appreciated about it was there's this moment when you first meet up with him in person where he offers you a drink or he offers you weed. And I feel like there's this where this moment where it's like, is this going to be that kind of profile? Like that's a that's a kind of profile. It's like I smoked weed with Killer Mike, you know, and you instead yeah. you're like, yeah, no, thank you. And you're doing something different. But I'm interested in when you get that kind of assignment, like what's your goal in that piece? Like, what is it that you're trying to understand? You know, for me, um, I don't think that I'm like that interesting of a person to like even like write about smoking weed with Killer Mike. And I really do have like an aversion to like putting myself in stories, but that's like a bit of like the style of GQ. So, you know, like I, of course, love GQ and have read it over the years. So I thought, let me give that a try. Let me try to put myself like a little bit more into the story and see what comes out of it. I think that a good profile should answer the question, who is this person? It should also answer the question, how did this person get to be this way? And it should give the reader some idea of why that person matters. And um, going into that Killer Mike piece, you know, that job was so much easier because Mike is incredibly transparent hmm. and he's also just like a great talker, right? So anything that like you can ask him about himself, he's thought about, he's willing to tell you and he'll make it fun along the way. So, you know, I kind of put myself as a character in the piece because, you know, at the same time, Mike has all of these things that kind of conflict, you know, about his personality, these things that, you know, don't don't always kind of make sense when it comes to his ideologies and, you know, some of the opinions that he had. So I knew that I needed to be in the piece trying to make sense of Mike, <laughs> you know, that that or like otherwise it would just seem like there were these things that were um, that kind of didn't line up that would look like lazy or like weird reporting. <laughs> if I just left it to the reader to be like, how is this guy, you know, like talks about his dad being a cop and he, you know, thinks that like police work can be like a great pathway to the middle class for black men, but also has songs where he's talking about killing every cop, right? That like, I almost had to like struggle with that in the piece in order for the reader to feel comfortable sitting with Mike as he kind of expressed some of those ideas. Um, and it was a pleasure, right? Cause also like, I love Atlanta. And I think that he's also, towards the question of like how this person got to be this way, he's such an Atlanta character. Mm -hmm. Like if you spend any significant time in Atlanta, then like, yeah, there are a lot of guys Mike's age who, you know, keep, you know, a couple blunts in their charger and who are like super conservative, you know, about black business and money and higher ed and can be like really respectable, but like at the same time are like, you know, fuck democratic politics and fuck the police and, you know, all that stuff kind of happening at once. So I knew that I wanted to kind of present Mike and all of his complexity, but that that meant spending time with him, pointing out sort of where, you know, I thought he didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. And then but then also kind of how explaining how all that's possible because he is a product of Atlanta, which is a city that doesn't really make sense. 
that, you know, it's a Southern city, but it's also very like progressive, at least now. Right. And, now. Um, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. Oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah. Where, That's where emphasis, emphasis on the now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for the, like, like North side, North side suburbs, you know? Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, that like Atlanta's weird, like yeah. Atlanta is really queer, but there are also a ton of churches. Atlanta has, you know, a number of fortune 500 companies, but you know, also like a significant homeless population that it can be incredibly racist, especially once you get outside of the perimeter, but it's a city where black Americans do really well mm -hmm. and, you know, often do a lot of business with those white racists, you know, outside of Atlanta. And it, it, you know, it's like, it produces like RuPaul and the B-52s, you know, but also Outkast and, um, you know, Migos. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the, the Killer Mike piece, I, I hope kind of brings all that to life. Well, I wondered reading it, just how you felt or what it meant to you, you know, X number of years after being at Morehouse and saying to your mentor, you know, I'm thinking about being a journalist, you're back in Atlanta doing a profile for GQ magazine. Like, how did that hit you when you were doing it? You know, I was just too racked with anxiety about getting it right to even, you know, think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, thinking about it now, I would say that that, that piece kind of represents the, the kind of storytelling that I've always wanted to do. And it's really affirming to see it be so well received, to see the like beautiful photos that they put together of Mike and the like the way that it was presented. Um, because what it says to me is that there is a pathway forward with this type of storytelling, that there is an audience for it. In that, you know, the way that I want to practice journalism is also like valuable and dope. You know what I mean? Which, you know, it's kind of hard to remember when you're a working journalist and you're just trying to meet your deadline. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I was really proud of that piece. So that piece. And then you also had this big uh, profile of Bubba Wallace that also came out last year. And so as a person who's just reading these pieces, enjoying them, I feel like then I develop an idea like, oh, I see. Now he's like a GQ guy. He's going to be writing GQ features yeah. uh, over and over again. And that's amazing. I can't wait to read these pieces. And then you announce that you're going to the LA Times. LA Times announces that you're coming there in this new reporting job. So I want to know how this came about. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, like I've always really insisted on writing stories about you know, the Black experience and like the lived experience of Black people. But there there aren't many opportunities to do that at, mm -hmm. at major publications. If you look around at, at most magazines and most websites, there's a Black guy. And it's usually a guy. Sometimes, you know, there's a woman there. But they, you know, I remember pitching ideas when I was a freelancer early on. And they would say, uh, we would let you do that, but maybe insert Black guy wants to do it. <laughs> so like you know and they would and, would they tell you the name they would say oh but yeah they would say you know maybe th i mean they like you know they they didn't present it as we can only have one black person but there is an idea you know when there's a person covering uh black life or issues of race at a publication that that's their domain and that nobody else should write about it mm -hmm. and whether it's because that person insists on that or because the outlet has sort of outsourced all thinking around race to to one person of color 
that's kind of the way that it is. So that's meant that, you know, I've almost had to freelance for most of my career if I wanted to write exclusively about the experiences of Black people. Um, you know, GQ, Wall Street Journal, you know, are both wonderful places because they have kind of a commitment to telling all types of stories. So my editor at, at GQ, you know, was like, we'll like always find something for you to do. You know what I mean? That like, there's plenty of stuff here that you can, you know, write about, um, you know, but there aren't huge budgets to hire, you know, someone else to write just about race. So when the opportunity at the LA Times opened up, it's so special because LA is, you know, a major city with a significant black population that has a huge foot, you know, footprint on culture and um, uh, the weather out here is beautiful. <laughs> you know, but I mean, but like more than anything, it was an opportunity to, to just do the things that I wanted to do. Like I actually got into writing about criminal justice, which became a beat for me because I was curious about black life. But that meant the only way that really I was able to do that was I had to kind of do this really, really often depressing slice mm -hmm. of black life. And there's so much more and there's so much beauty in, in the lived experiences of Black people. And like I said, you know, earlier in thinking about the stories that I wanted to tell, you know, that, that like there are so many stories that just never get told about Black life that, you know, want to have a connection to being a Black person. Um, but then being a Black person who's had the benefit of like a really good education and I've been given like some shots here and there, it feels like a duty. Mm -hmm. um, that like if I'm not going to tell these stories, then who? So, you know, I kind of entered the conversation a little bit nervously with the LA Times thinking about, you know, like, do I want to be at a newspaper? You know, do I want to be writing, you know, for like a Metro desk, the sort of like kind of churn that you have with that. But also, you know, I do that, like, I want to be in a Black community writing even those small neighborhood stories. You know, so after a few months of conversation, I mean, it might have been like three months that I had just a ton of meetings with people hmm. um, from the executive editor, you know, all the way down to um, reporters and like editorial assistants. And I, you know, asked friends um, who had been at the Times, you know, about the place. I decided that it was a place that one, I could cover the beat that I wanted, but also that I could still do the type of writing that I want to do, which is, you know, long form um, narrative style writing, profile writing, you know, is still a passion of mine. So I said, yes, and it's been pretty good so far. And and you have, I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of a parallel with, with your book in that, you know, if your beat is black life, it both allows you so much space to tell stories, but also creates this sort of infinite availability problem where you have to decide mm. where you're going to turn your attention. So how do you decide which questions you want to answer even? Yeah, no, you are, this is the biggest drama of my little like anxious life right now is there are so many stories. I mean, it's also, you know, worth saying that, you know, there are nearly a million black people in LA and, you know, I'm the only guy on the beat. So it is yeah. a big beat that, yeah. um, you know, LA is unlike a city like Atlanta um, or even a city like New York, where the black population is um, not just in one area, right? That like there are black people all over LA in these little pockets and the institutions are really everywhere. You know, like LA is just like a city that's just very spread out. So I have a lot of ground to cover. I'm prioritizing 
um, a few things. One, I think it's really important to stay diligent about covering the fallout of the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. because I do think that that is going to continue to be one of the most important stories nationally for at least the next few years, but especially important, you know, when it comes to vulnerable communities um, like Black communities. But then also, it goes back to what Rich Benjamin, the director of fellow at Demos taught me, which is that you have to be intentional. You got to sit down and think about, you know, what you think the issues are and put together a portfolio of ideas that you think will at least allow you to answer the big questions that you have. And you'll get pulled here and there as like news happens. But as long as you, you know, have in mind the sort of larger story that you want to tell, you'll always find your way back to sort of who you really are and what your voice is. So for me, you know, LA is a city that's like developing very quickly where the black population is actually diminishing. So, you know, I've noticed just in, you know, the few months that I've been here, a lot of efforts to maintain a physical presence, you know, in neighborhoods that are rapidly gentrifying, but also to hold on to a sense of identity and to a sense of community. Sort of reminding people that LA is a place where Black people have had significant contributions is really important to the community here. So um, if I would say how I'm kind of dealing with the issue of kind of being a generalist, it is keeping that in mind that the larger story of what's happening in Los Angeles is about a shrinking Black community that's trying to hold on to identity and community. Mm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Really great talking to you. No, it's been wonderful. Thank you for talking to me. And I'm, I'm headed to the beach now. That's the plus of living oh, in LA. Man. Yeah. All right. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> all right. See you later, man. That's it for this week's show. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Donovan Ramsey for coming on the show and for a great conversation. His book, which is going to be called When Crack Was King, will be out sometime in the next year, he thinks. So uh, look out for that. And uh, also, there's a really quick mention of a book called Black Futures in here, which is out and you should pick up. Uh, It's edited by Jenna Wortham and Kimberly Drew. Jenna's been on the show before and it's fantastic. So get that while you're waiting for Donovan's book to come. My co-hosts on the show are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Uh, The editor this week is Gabriela Saldivia. Welcome, Gabriela. Our intern is Susan Peterson. And our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free 
Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.